This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Bradford Copelet is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Kansas. He has written and co-edited three books, including The Moral Psychology of Guilt, which is to be published this month. He is also the recipient of two Templeton Foundation grants to study character, virtue, and motivation. His work concerns Eastern philosophy, the philosophy of religion, and applied ethics. In this podcast, Brad and I talk about ethical traditions of the East and West and begin to discuss how to meaningfully compare and contrast traditions. was in math and religious studies um, and I was raised in a non-religious household so I got interested in sort of questions about what I want to do with my life so I started a uh, religious studies major and so I studied a lot of Buddhism and uh, Christianity and Judaism and then after I graduated from college I was a social worker for a brief time and then I had a friend who was studying philosophy and he sort of turned me on to it and so I started reading it and then uh, I went to get a master's degree to see if I wanted to do it more seriously. And so that was the period at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, I started taking ethics courses. And that's when I realized uh, my whole interest in religion was basically around a question of how do you live a good life? What should, you know, what should I do with my life? Um, and then my time as a social worker got me more interested in stuff about social justice and sort of what being a good parent involves. Um, so, so those are sort of my real life interests. And then, um, you know, I professionalized into academic philosophy as time went on. Uh, but I sort of kept up the side interests in psychology and, uh, Buddhism, especially at that point that I took classes when I was in grad school. Um, so that's how I kind of got into it. And what drew your, um, interest in Buddhism in particular? Well, I'm not a theist, and I sort of think it's sort of like the William James idea that I, I made friends with a lot of theists, I went to a lot of different churches, uh, and it just wasn't really a live option for me. Mm-hmm. And so, but I was interested in the idea of, I guess, figuring out what my current psychology was like, and what I could do to change it, uh, to be happier and to sort of live my life in a good way. And so then, so then Buddhism was a natural draw because they have lots of sort of technologies or whatever you want to call them for trying to modify your psychology, understand your psychology. And it didn't have a theistic backdrop. So it was sort of easily accessible to me. I see. Okay, cool. So I think that we'll just go ahead and jump right into kind of our topic for today since there's a lot in here um, for just an hour. Um, so Brad is is thankfully going to educate me on some of the differences between ethical traditions of the East and the West. Um, So first, Brad, could you tell me about sort of the main ethical, the the main Western ethical traditions, um, what they are, and just brief descriptions kind of of each? Yeah, I mean, I guess one way to think about this is that 
you know, and a, and a kind of useful caricature that everyone uses is that ethics in the West, um, to some extent, in philosophy anyway, started in Greece. And so a lot of people think there might have been some kind of background Homeric hero culture. And then when you get to people like Aristotle and Plato, uh, they're trying to kind of rationalize and improve the background culture that they're inheriting mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, use reason in order to reflect on and improve uh, their background uh, value scheme that's in their culture. And so that, you know, there's a sort of Greek ethics that a lot of people now will look back to. I guess most people uh, today in philosophy anyway, or even outside of philosophy, a lot of people look back to Aristotle. And so Aristotle had this idea of, uh, he's mainly focused on the idea of a good life for and a good, what it is to be a good human being. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't really have a notion of morality as sort of an independent set of rules or norms or considerations apart from other values. And so he has just, he focuses on the idea of being a good person or a good human being and li living a happy, some people say flourishing life. And he identified good features you have to have in order to be a good human being and live a good life. And those are roughly, like the Greek term is arete. It's basically excellences you need. And that's sort of the origin of our term virtue now, uh, mm -hmm. roughly put. And so among those are things we would now call moral virtues. So things like justice, but they also included things like being witty and, uh, you know, potentially uh, taking proper pride in your great accomplishments. And so, you know, nowadays we wouldn't really think of those as moral defects if you're not witty or you don't, you know, if you're not proud enough of what you've done. So it, it's, it was this kind of general category of sort of virtues of a good person living a good life. Um, and so then there's a big, uh, huge historical tradition going all the way up uh, through, you know, the influence of Christianity, especially. And Aristotle was sort of taken up by St. Thomas Aquinas and had a huge influence on the Catholic Church. And... Mm -hmm. So one thing is that the idea of a good life and what is to be a good person gets transformed by sort of largely a Christian-dominated culture. But for a long time, you might it's useful to think of it as sort of there's still that's still sort of the basic framework. Um, and then I think one way to think about it is uh, there is a big shift uh, in thinking of turning away from just thinking about it and thinking they're actually a set of moral norms or rules uh, that are independent of what's good or bad for individual human beings and makes us happy and what makes us good people. And one way to think about that is their divine commands that God laid down on a you know tablet or something or they're they're out there. Um, other people just thought they're just these are these moral rules. And that kind of idea of morality as a set of norms that's independent of what's good for us, makes us a good human being, that really came into its own during sort of the modern period in the West. Um, so that's, I guess I would say about the Western kind of history of ethics. There's these sort of two phases, one that's just doesn't really have a distinct, distinctive distinction between morality and other things that make us good human beings and help us live well together. Um, and then there's a shift to thinking there's this special thing, morality. Mm -hmm. um, and that, uh, 
I think in certain ways starts with certain uh, Christian thinkers, especially people who are interested in divine command theory. Um, but then it comes into its own with the rise of uh, the modern state. Uh, it's a complicated story. I don't want to try to get into too much of it, but from what okay. I understand <laughs> of it, I mean, I've read history philosophers and intellectual historians writing about this. There's this complicated story, but the, the, the way the easiest thing to notice is there's this. Now people just think, well, there's morality, and there's a, what's you know would be good for you and what it would be for you to live a good life, and people think those might conflict, and so they're definitely not like one's not grounded in the other. They're, they're, they're like, they can totally come apart. And then typically people at that point want to say, you should do the moral thing, even when it's going to require you to suffer a lot. And, you know, so that, so that's the, so sort of like these two ideas. One is morality is an independent thing. And number two is that a lot of people want to say it should, it's the thing you should do even at great sacrifice. Um, yeah. So, so was that, I mean, it sounds like you're saying that sort of the separation between what's good for a person or what's good in sort of this like more abstract ethical kind of sense that mm -hmm. that distinction wasn't really the case in ancient Greece. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's, uh, I mean, some people have sort of, uh, when you try to get precise on what exactly was not present in Greece that, that is present in more recent thinking, like anything else, you'll get scholars uh, disagreeing. Um, so what some people will say things like, uh, if you read Aristotle, like my advisor in grad school, Richard Kraut, argues that Aristotle just doesn't even have the concept of moral right and wrong in his, in his thinking. Hmm. Um, and then other people like Julie Annist, who's a really excellent uh, philosopher at Arizona, you know, she argues maybe against that. Or so there's a back and forth, but I think everyone would agree um, whether or not, you know, there's a, first of all, there's a dispute about whether these ancient Greek philosophers even had the concepts of moral right and wrong. Um, but even if they did, they didn't really distinguish, uh, you know, what we think is like morally good and bad features of people from other features that would make you live well or not, or, uh, you know, whether you, you know, maybe we might think of stuff like witty, being witty, we might be like, oh yeah, that makes you more fun to be around and maybe you make people happy, but it's not like a moral issue. Yeah. Um, and so they just didn't, they didn't really distinguish. So they either didn't, they, some people think, you know, they didn't even have these moral concepts. Mm -hmm. Other people think, well, okay, maybe they have the concepts, but they just didn't really, it wasn't that big a deal. Like they, that wasn't the focus for them. Um, they were focused yeah. on, you know, everybody living well and being good human beings. Uh, so it's, that's interesting to me because it, it also, it kind of makes sense that, all right, so you then have, you know, religions come along that, namely Christianity, that kind of dictate, all right, there are these certain rules for social functioning. And yet, like the early Christian church arose from ancient Greece. So was right, there like a right. specific... Well, my understanding, so this is, I am not an expert on this, but my understanding roughly at this point is that it really wasn't until the medieval period um, with people like Duns Scotus and these kind of uh, medieval uh, scholastic philosophers, they get called. Um, so I'm really bad with dates, but this is way after the early church. It's at, you know, okay. and, um, but it's before the enlightenment. And so, but, but these guys were basically saying, um, you know, look, God created these uh, 
commands. He commanded certain things. Those are the moral rules. And um, it's not really, you know, grounded. You can't give an account of what's right or wrong based on an account of human nature and what human beings, what's good or bad for them. But that idea that you could make sense of moral right and wrong based on thinking about human nature and what's good or bad for humans, this kind of broadly Aristotelian idea, that idea is even, that's basically Aquinas' view, I think. From what mm. I understand, it's in, the, in the contemporary Catholic Church to some extent. So there are lots of Christians all along that don't really posit these sort of moral rules that are sort of independent. Um, and my total caricature is that, you know, the more you think human beings are sort of utterly depraved and sinful, you might start to think of the moral rules as being something independent that's imposed on them. But I don't think that's really totally. Um, right, yeah. but, I, but my impression is like historically, you're right, like all early Christianity, um, this idea wasn't that big. It sort of came at a later period in the development. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. So um, the, the other thought I kind of had about this was uh, I think some of those issues, the idea that what's good for you or just personal traits that are, you know, like what you know how Blaine calls certain traits like performance traits, not moral right. traits, mm -hmm. um, that kind of a thing. I wonder also how much that has to do with just a rise in individualism in general, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar with um, like classic societies as mm -hmm. well as I'd like to be. But mm -hmm. again, like individualism, my understanding is this is sort of, it's, it really started to, come into like politics and social functioning again with like ancient Greece moving mm -hmm. forward. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I wonder like just if the level of individualism has increased over time mm -hmm. alongside that shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I mean, one thing about that, that brings to mind anyway, is so about both, ancient Greece and, you know, like medieval Europe, say, and then a lot of people say the same thing about ancient China, for example, um, and to some extent contemporary different Asian countries, is that they think insofar as they had like an ethical worldview and an ethical practice in their culture, it was what some people make a distinction between a shame culture and a guilt culture, mm -hmm. and they think... Um, and so I just edited a collection on guilt. So that's a lot more complicated, obviously, when you try to work it out. But roughly the idea is that, um, you know, with the advent of this kind of idea of morality as an independent set of norms that might go away from what's good for you and that you should act on what's right, a lot of times people think that is connected to the idea of having a conscience. And if your your conscience is connected to guilt. And you might think, um, Shame is just a more general response to failures to act in ways that others would approve of. But so a lot of people think guilt and conscience, it has this individualistic aspect where, you know, if you feel guilty, you think you have done something wrong and you're unhappy with the kind of person you have been. So it's really like focused on you as an individual. Um, where shame might be more like embarrassment, where it's just, it's kind of like you're aware other people are looking at you in a negative way and you might try to kind of hide or something. Um, mm. 
So I don't know, but there might be something to, um, you know, this, the idea that a certain form of guilt or guilt starts to play a bigger role, uh, over time, and that might be connected to people thinking of themselves as individuals more mm. and caring more about their, their whether they're good or bad as an individual. Um, so that's one thought, but I, that's pretty. That's obviously very speculative. Um, okay. Yeah. So backing up to sort of the history of Western ethics, mm-hmm. so we get to the point where people start to think about sort of personal goods and broader ethical goods um, as distinct. Mm-hmm. How do you like deontological traditions and consequentialist kind of traditions come into the picture here? Right. Um, well, that's pretty complicated, but I guess one way to think about it is, um, you know, in philosophy, sort of deontological. So, so that means roughly sort of rules, rule focused. Um, I think kind of technically or something, but um, I mean linguistically. But you know, you might think uh, like if you, if you were to ask who's the famous deontologist, everybody would probably say Immanuel Kant uh, would be probably one of the main people you would focus on. And um, one way to think about that is that. Uh, Kant is embedded in a part of uh, the history of philosophy, and he's really focused on the idea that we have certain duties or obligations. And those duties and obligations we have aren't connected in any systematic, reliable way with what's good or bad for us at all. So he mm-hmm. thinks there are, just these, there are just these moral facts about what you're obligated to do, what it's permitted to do, what's right or wrong. And he thinks... Uh, ancient philosophy made a big mistake when it tried to connect that up with stuff about what's good or bad for people. Um, and so he tried to give a story, sort of a non-theistic story about the foundation of these moral right and wrong, these obligations we all have. And he also brought up the idea that all human beings have some special dignity because we're just because we're rational beings. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor or what area, you know, whether you're high or low status or anything else, how old you are, the color of your skin. I mean, it's in principle, Kant's view is everybody has equal dignity and they should be treated with respect. And that's sort of the basis for his thinking about obligations. Um, so that's one way to think about it is that at least Kant's deontology, it's really about respect for all people because they're rational agents. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not, you know, that's one dominant or prominent type of deontology. So, but it's not based on, uh, if you want to know what you're obligated to do, it's pretty much a matter of like, how, what do you need to do to respect yourself and other people? And it's not about what you, what you would do to bring about the most good in the world. Um, so you could think in lots of cases, um, like I teach medical ethics, you know, at an end of life situation, you might think, well, this person, they're going to suffer less if we uh, euthanize them. But you might think that that's in some way disrespectful of them. So, so deontology really, that's just an easy way to think about it is that it's the, your intuitive ideas about what it takes to respect people. That's kind of the core. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, deontology was in various forms. And then, um, you know, historically, at least some part of where consequentialism came from is it partially came from people like Francis Hutchinson, who's a, who's a, early English thinker, Scottish, I guess, that's horrible, I don't know. Um, 
kind of thinking about what would a benevolent God want? Uh, that's one source that people thought about that. Um, and they just started thinking, well, well, if you were a God and you were all powerful and you were benevolent, you would want to bring about the best world you could. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way to think, get into the idea of consequentialism is if you were all powerful and you were really a good, good person and you were really benevolent and kind, wouldn't you want to just make the world the best place you could? Um, so then it seems like the right thing to do is whatever will bring about the best world or outcome. And so that's a good way to get into kind of what the way consequentialists uh, end up thinking about things is they think that's basically what determines what's right or wrong is what brings about the best consequences. Um, yeah. And so early on, it was uh, like, you know, there's lots of famous consequentialisms like Bentham and Mill. They, they tend to adopt what philosophers call welfareism. So that's this technical term. It just means when you're like, I want to bring out the best world. How do you measure a good world? Like what world's better or worse? They say, just keep your eye on well-being. And so the idea is um, the best action is the one that will promote people living happy lives, you know, and it's bad if it detracts from quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so that was, and so you can see that's an appealing idea, uh, but it's going to get you, it's going to be really different than deontology. So like, you know, like my case of the person at the end of life, um, that's a toy case to see where at least, you know, the simple forms of the theories are going to come apart. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know. I've kind of gotten into the different theories. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That's it. It's helpful. Cause I, I think of those as different ethical traditions, even though they're born yeah. out of sort of the same roots. Um, okay, so now let's shift gears to um, Eastern ethical traditions and sort of, mm-hmm. I loved the historic backdrop. That was fascinating. I'd love to hear more about the historic mm-hmm. backdrop on this side too. Yeah, so I'm not as, I mean, I'm not an expert on either one of these histories, but I'm sort of fascinated by them and read about them and think about them all the time. Um, and so the Eastern tradition um, that I guess I'm most interested in recently is in is china and so um you know early china uh there's a lot of uh different strands of the traditions i guess the main ones that people pull on are originally right away are confucianism and taoism and so one way to think about confucianism is just so confucius uh you could think of him he's this guy sort of wandering around in this period where there's sort of political, some political instability, but things aren't too bad. And he's going around and he's got ideas about why things aren't going quite right politically, socially, and in individual people's lives. And he thinks things were better back in this past dynasty that, you know, like several generations ago. And he's like, oh, there was this period where things were better and things are worse now because there's been this decline from the way things used to be done. And mm-hmm. so he advocates trying to kind of reinstate and live in accordance with a, what get translated as rituals uh, that were really influential in these past dynasties. And part of his idea is that um, by following these rituals, you become, that's your best mode to becoming a good person. Hmm. It involves what he calls learning, uh, which maybe involves some kind of study of say these classic, uh, texts or sets of songs that are kind of like folklore. And then you also engage in these rituals and you sort of have to observe yourself and cultivate your ability to live, like act out these rituals well. And that'll shape 
your whole way of behaving and interacting with everyone in your society. And he thinks you can sort of become a good person, a good human being, it looks like, by using all these rituals and doing this sort of study. Mm-hmm. And um, what he thinks is that in order to have a good political system, you need the leaders to do all this stuff and then they'll become good people. And if they're really good people, they'll sort of inspire the populace. So they'll, first of all, they'll do have good policies because they won't be bad people. But they'll also, because they'll be these sort of exemplary people, they'll inspire the, the people around them, you know, all their underlings in the, in, the, in the military and in the bureaucracy, but also the, the, the common people will sort of be inspired by their moral ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this idea of sort of the good person or the good human being, or I mean, of course, it's all gendered, so it's the good man, um, mm-hmm. which we have talked about. <laughs> And so, there, so there's this also kind of like in Greece, there's this focus on the idea of a good person, and it and it looks like you know it's more or less connected to the idea of living a good life. Um, so one difference is there's a lot of emphasis on uh, ritual and uh, using ritual as a way to transform yourself into a good person, mm-hmm. and there's less of an emphasis than you find in Greek philosophy, at least, on reasoning and developing your kind of rational capacities. Mm. So if you ask, you know, Confucians, what's, what's a good human being look like? What's the best human life? They're going to say, you've developed all these kind of uh, virtues, some of which will be, we would now call moral, some of this we might not. So it's kind of like the Greeks with that. And then maybe you'll be like a really great prince or you'll be a really great functionary in the society. So you'll sort of contribute to social uh, success. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look in Greece, if you look at Aristotle and and other Greeks and you ask, what's the best life? They're They're sort of broken up over this. Partially they think the best life would be if you just were like, kind of what we might now think of as like a research scientist, like that they would call a theoretical philosopher, and you sort of contemplate the truths about the structure of the universe. And they're like, well, then maybe, you know, it's, it's also pretty good to be this political person who uses their reason to run society well, but uh, that's sort of second best. Mm. <laughs> and you kind of see that in, in a way in Plato too. I mean, he's sort of like, you know, the philosophers leave the world and go see this world of forms. Or something. So they've sort of lived this theoretical life. And then they might, they might come back to end up working in politics, but it's kind of a little mystery like, why they're doing that, and it seems kind of like a letdown. Mm. Um, so that's one distinction is that, you know, in this, these ancient Chinese uh, tradition, at least Confucianism, virtue is more about uh, this worldly kind of operation and, and, and less reason-focused. And in uh, Greece, it kind of looks like the good life for a human being and the virtues are more geared towards theoretical research and contemplation. Um, so I don't know, that's some initial stuff. Yeah, and what about, you also had mentioned Taoism. What about Taoism? Yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, so it's a very complicated tradition. It started out with these sort of texts, as I understand it, and it didn't develop into a religion later. Um, but I guess one way to think about that is that that tradition is sort of, uh, it has a, a kind of general thrust of being sort of, less focused on making a big effort to cultivate 
good traits through sort of what you might think of as like civilizing yourself. So like you think like your kids growing up and you're like, oh, my kid needs to go to school and they have to learn how to interact in society and they need to learn how to follow, you know, social norms. And so if your kid has a learning disability, they might need to get extra help uh, learning how to play with others and follow our social norms. Um, and that's so, I mean, in one way you might think the Confucians, they're thinking, yeah, you have to get really good at interacting with other people. And it's this kind of civilizing process that involves learning rules and in, internalizing them. And the Taoists think, uh, you know, maybe it's like the civil, civilizing stuff and the use of reflection and reason and that sort of stuff. It might be just bad. Uh, but at most, it's not the ideal. And the ideal is somehow according with something that's kind of more natural, that's sort of before, it, it arises before the influence of reflection or kind of cultural civilizing influences. And so there's a, there's a kind of back to nature uh, dimension of Taoism or a sort of anti-intellectual, uh, anti don't overthink things. Uh, sort of aspect to it hmm. um, and then even politically there's stuff about uh, look you should just get your populace to live in these different subsidies and don't they should be in like little villages and don't they shouldn't be like there shouldn't be like commerce they shouldn't like talk to each other and so like ideally your citizens they'll have their basic needs met and they'll just kind of chill out in their local village and they'll just kind of naturally be nice to each other and live well in harmony with themselves and nature and they won't they won't need to be taught too much or told too much uh they can sort of to some extent uh just be living these sort of rural-ish you know kind of uh lives um and they don't need to develop a lot of thinking um and so that so it, it's that's as a first caricature it's 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 very kind of against development of like a civilized rational uh mode of living or kind of interacting um interesting um so like to what degree do these traditions sort of head nod toward um the goods of other traditions so for instance like um you know the U.S. is pretty individualistic. Right. We're focused a lot on rationality, but I think that people can appreciate collective values. They can appreciate tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so to what extent are the goods from each of these traditions recognizable to the other right. traditions? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think... Uh, I mean, it's sort of complicated. I mean, I think a lot of times, uh, like when people in the in Western countries from Western backgrounds or in Western culture talk about, uh, say, like the value of tradition or the value of uh, having roots in a place and the goods of community, um, a lot of their sort of the background of those ideas and probably the, the contours of the specific way they're going to work out that idea. Uh, are connected to broadly Greek Aristotelian ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's a way, you know, kind of modern individualists, like if you think about, um, like I mean, Christopher Lash wrote this book, um, The Culture of Narcissism, 
or there's like more recent books in psychology about the, the rise of narcissism and uh, like there are other people who during the 80s on sort of the conservative side of the culture wars and kind of there's a theme and there are other people, you know, Wendell Berry is a well-known poet um, who also writes about cultural criticism and a lot of people saying, or you think like Bowling Alone, like there's a lot of these books that are about our individualism is kind of not so great in certain ways and it's leading to this sort of narcissism and a lack of community. And I think a lot of that thinking, um, you know, it's, it's sort of against the backdrop of these currents in Western philosophy, but there's a way uh, it looks like some of those ideas look similar to the value placed on community and tradition in Eastern culture. So I think to some extent, um, there's a place for kind of appreciating maybe something that's emphasized more in another tradition by finding there's, there's sort of something at least similar in, in, in the other tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and at least scholars of Confucianism uh, have tried to do that same thing uh, with the Confucian tradition. And then there's other... Uh, groups in Chinese history, obviously, and then there's, you know, the influence of Marxism and so Buddhism comes in. There's a, it's a super complicated tradition, but there's definitely a lot of people who are trying to find something like a more kind of the concerns Westerners have about the value of the individual in the Confucian and the Buddhist and the sort of developing traditions mm. in China. Um, and so I think there is, and one thing is I'm interested in, there's some, there's a really interesting sociologist at UCLA who works on theories of modernization. And so he's written some interesting stuff about how the process of modern individualization as kind of a sociological phenomenon. Um, so it's like people move away from their home community. They, a lot of them move to the city. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe people stop believing nature involves, you know, gods controlling what happens in their local environment. Uh, there's he has various features uh, that he picks up on, and so it's basically it's this German sociologist Ulrich Back has a theory of that how it happened in the West, and so this guy he's talking about how right now in China the process of individualization uh, sociologically is really ramping up mm. right now in China, um, and he thinks it's kind of a little bit different, you know. But it's, so I think that's an interesting thing for me is to see how, um, not just the ideas, but maybe even like the actual sociological changes that we yeah. associate with individualism, you know, maybe that stuff has already happened in certain countries where, you know, in different cultures and where it's happening now. So anyway, that's, yeah. but it's but interesting. Yeah. I, I, you know, and maybe I'm an outlier in this, maybe I'm just wrong, but it's interesting. I often hear people talk about how the world is westernizing, but mm -hmm. as far as as far as like morality and things like that go, I I also feel like the world is easternizing. Um, <laughs> like it, huh. like um, you know, like for instance, there's been the huge wave of mindfulness research in mm -hmm. psychology, which I think is influenced by Eastern thought and right. sort of this, I, this popularization of Buddhism. Like I've been seeing a lot of books coming out almost as like <laughs> Buddhist apologetics. I guess that doesn't even make sense because it's not theistic, but um, you know, basically saying here's the merits of, of embracing these ideas. Um, and even like, 
just in the States now, liberalization in politics, there's a lot of frustrations, I think, with not, um, there's a lot of frustrations by liberals toward conservatives of like, hey, we need to operate a little bit more collectivistically. We need to, you know, have these, maybe I shouldn't go so far as to say roles, but certainly an eye toward like, it's not all about me or it's not all about you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know, just, just a thought I've never quite put into words, but it seems like it's not, it's not clear to me that the world is just Westernizing, which I kind of feel that some people imply. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I agree. I mean, because I mean, since I don't really, I primarily started out mainly doing Western philosophy, but now I do Eastern philosophy too. And I, but I, I don't. And so, I mean, I know a lot of people, they're like, you know, the whole idea of talking about East and West already is this kind of ridiculous idea. Yeah. yeah. What about, you know, and there's, you know, there are other parts of the globe like Africa. And I mean, but I think <laughs> one thing is that I think you're right. That when people talk about Westernizing, I think they mean something like, uh, you know, dominantly European ideas uh, and that have, uh, and the United States stuff from there is sort of uh, yeah. uh, being, getting uptake other, other places. Uh, and I, so I think that's totally an interesting idea. And I guess I sort of wonder if, you know, you can kind of separate um, kind of sociological processes of modernization in some way that I feel mm-hmm. like are to some extent spreading around. Um, at least to some other countries where they weren't so dominant before. And yeah, um, that's true. That might be right. But I think you're right when it comes, it's easy to conflate that with sort of certain ideas. And there's, you know, there's obviously connections, but I think, um, you know, you're right that it's, my thought is, you know, people are sort of moving into a uh, new period uh, in lots of different parts of the globe. I mean, there's so many big changes going on with all the technology. Yeah. Uh, and the, 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 the world of technology my kids are growing up in and the world they're going to live in and the role of technology and then there's climate change and there's all this kind of the sense, which, you know, people have been saying since ancient Greece, like everything's changing. But you might think uh, it's kind of like there's this new sort of very different world for a lot of people from the world like, you know, two generations ago. And... That always happens, but maybe now people can kind of draw on ideas, at least, from different cultural backgrounds in order to figure out how to navigate. Yeah. And that's where I agree. Um, you know, I think the Buddhism case is interesting because I, I actually do work on Buddhism and I'm finishing a book on that. And one thing about that is, you know, a lot of people will say, if you look at mindfulness and the way it's got uptake um, in psychology, I mean, so there's sort of two reactions I find interesting. And so one is there's, there's like a uh, like kind of successful, you know, academic, I think, influential, smart Catholic woman who's pushing back against the use of mindfulness, say, in the schools. And she's saying this is not just some kind of neutral psychological treatment. Uh, it comes from this religious tradition. Um, and I think other people, like I recently saw like a piece in Aeon sort of saying a similar thing. and then. I think, okay, that's one thing. And then another thing is a lot of Buddhist scholars have recently pushed back and said, a lot of what people are talking about is mindfulness. It's not really what's going on in these Buddhist traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's an interesting thing where you think, uh, like if I'm a Buddhist now and I read a lot of Buddhism and I'm you know, reading these books and I start meditating, 
I could even be doing these traditional Buddhist meditations, but what I'm doing is pretty different from what someone in like an Asian country would be doing if they're Buddhist. Um, even if, you know, they, they probably would, they would be either like a monk. That's this whole way of life. Um, or they, they're, and they're usually like lay practices. You know, it's just like Catholic monks do one thing and then the people who like, you know, go a couple times a year do a different thing. And um, so I think it's a really interesting thing about um, how much of these other traditions can we really import into our lives, you know, the way we live now. It's like, it's in some way, it can have an influence, but it's going to be sort of a sliver of the original uh, yeah. tradition and all stuff. And I don't, that doesn't mean it's bad, but um, I don't know. So those are some thoughts. Yeah. But I agree with you. Um, one thing I guess I'll end on is you, you brought up, it's really interesting you said about liberals and conservatives, because I think, you know, one way to read the kind of conservative movements and, uh, you know, kind of the, the Trump movement and Brexit and all such, I mean, even the people who are in favor of those movements, they tend to really be against globalization and there's a kind of protectionist, mm. uh, nationalistic kind of circle the wagons and protect the tradition type of aspect to those movements. Um, and so in some ways, it's kind of interesting that I think you're right that, you know, some liberals are saying it shouldn't be about me and you and who gets, gets ahead. It should be about some more relational community thing. Yeah. Um, but it seems like something like that is kind of motivating some people on a total other side of the spectrum. Um, but it doesn't mean we're going to get together and agree. Uh, but uh, yeah. I well, and I, and I think kind of an important theme in what you're saying and that I agree with is that as these sort of traditions interact with each other, they're creating something fundamentally new. That's not, that's not quite the same as the tradition before it's left a little bit different once it's interpreted through a specific lens. Um, and I yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I view it. It's like, I think, you know, it's sort of, I mean, I haven't read it yet, but I know it's a Charles Taylor has this giant book on secularism. And so one thing I kind of, for me, a little bit of his stuff, it's like, look, you could be the most devout Catholic or you could be an Orthodox Jew right now. And it's still really hard. You can't, it's, you don't live in the sort of society that people lived in like, you know, 15 generations ago. Uh, for most people today, you live in a multicultural environment and there's all this technology and things are just really different. And so, I think even people who are in their own tradition that they've had through their family history or whatever it is, um, I, yeah, I sort of feel like we're in this new environment. Um, and it makes it kind of interesting, you know, how can these traditions adapt to the new environment? And for those of us who maybe are sort of uprooted from the tradition of our family a couple of generations ago or, you know, many generations ago, um, what can you borrow from other traditions for in terms of ethics, you know, or religion or something? It's, I, yeah, it's... It's an interesting question. <laughs> it is. And actually, it's the perfect transition to talk about how we even go about comparing these traditions. So oh, nice. let's yeah. talk about your framework for, comparison, for comparing these ethical traditions. Right. Um, right. So like what in your paper that I was reading through, it seems like you identify a few, um, a few elements of nuance in these traditions that can kind of help tease them apart so what mm -hmm. are those nuances right so um 
I've got this paper that's sort of about uh, why do cross-cultural ethics uh, and, why, and how do you do it uh, in a way that wouldn't be a waste of time. And so part of the background is there are a lot of people that, that are scholars, uh, both in Asia and in the U.S., who study Asian philosophy, for example, or ethics or religion. They think whenever people try to, do comp to compare these things, what they always end up doing is they always end up saying, which Western view is Buddhism most like? <laughs> mm. uh, or how would Buddhists deal with this problem that Westerners have with it? You know, or something like the same thing with Confucianism. And so people think it's a kind of like cultural imperialism uh, going on with a lot of this comparative stuff, or maybe, you know, if not that, it's just kind of a waste of time. And so um, then there are other people who think, yeah, and on top of that, if you just go study these other traditions, like if you go study Asian philosophy or African philosophy, you'll discover stuff that uh, maybe their whole worldview is sort of incommensurable with Western thinking, and it's better. So mm -hmm. there's... There are sort of people saying these kinds of things, and so that was partially what I'm trying to say is, what I believe is that, you know, it's great if you want to just go study another tradition on its own terms, I think that's a great thing to do. Uh, you need linguistic skills I don't have. I, I learn from people who do that. But then I wanted to say there's this place for comparative uh, work. And so basically, um, the way I did that is I said, well, one thing to know is that Every tradition and major philosophic system of ethics uh, that I know of has what you could call a theory of virtue, which you could think of as a set of good traits uh, or dispositions that you need, sort of personality, uh, features of your personality or something like that, that are going to be uh, good. And maybe they make you an admirable person or a better person. And then a lot of them are gonna include a bunch of things we would call moral traits. Mm -hmm. And so everybody uh, ha has a theory of virtue. So, you know, even like Kant and Hume and all these people, they all have theories of virtue. And, but if you wanna compare these different traditions, one thing you can ask is, um, how important do they think these virtues are? And what kind of role does the idea of having these virtues play in their thinking about ethics and morality. And so I guess one of the big contrasts is that uh, if you look at someone like Kant, uh, he tends to think that you can understand morally what you ought to do, and you can succeed in doing what you morally ought to do if you're sort of a well, relatively normal person with your basic reasoning faculties. So he thinks uh, it's that the ability to be a morally good person is very accessible uh, to everyone. And so there's some really appealing things about that. So one reason that Aristotle, for example, looks like he says some really nasty, bad things that are false about women is he thinks women just can't reason very well. Uh, they're naturally uh, sort of slavish. And what he means by that is he thinks some people just aren't fit to make decisions for themselves. So if you think there are people who we think we, they need help. They can't make autonomous decisions for themselves because they just don't have the, the intellectual capacities or cognitive capacities. So I think Aristotle thinks there's a bunch of people like that that are just naturally like that, and those are the people who should be slaves, and then it includes most of the women or something. You know, and it's like, <laughs> great, right? Like, it's like, yeah. it's to us. But, you know, not that long ago, people would always think that about all women uh, or something like that, and they're, you know, their emotions get in the way or whatever. And yeah. so... 
one nice thing about Kant, the Kantian view is that when he's saying everyone can be, has what it takes to be moral, he's thinking that's because everyone has their enough rational capacity. He just thinks it's sort of built into being a human being, that you have a kind of dignity in good part because you have the power of reason to figure out how to be a moral person and do it. Um, so it's a really what the philosophers would call egalitarian. It's like everybody's equal. Um, and so that's an appealing idea of sort of morality is a set of rules or obligations that everyone has to live up to. Um, and that makes sense because everybody can live up to it, you know? Yeah. So that's one, that's one idea. And then I think there's another idea that you find in, in a lot of ancient traditions like the Confucians uh, and in Greece where they think uh, to be a good person and to be moral, um, it requires you to develop over time. Certain, you have to have a certain amount of experience. Maybe you have to develop certain skills or uh, habits. And it's a kind of habituation process into that or some kind of training through rituals or whatever it is, but there's, it's, it's, it's sort of an accomplishment to be able to understand what the right thing to do is and to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of one of the, I guess that's sort of in some ways a big contrast, I think, um, between Confucianism and ancient Greek thinking about ethics. And um, I think a way a lot of people think and talk about ethics today uh, in our culture is they sort of think of it in this more way that's like what Kant's saying. Um, so. That's, I don't know if that's helpful, but I guess that's, that's the kind of initial contour, the kind of core contrast um, that I draw. So the core contrast being talking about, like, good action, what, what is a good thing to do ethically versus what makes you as a person, like, good. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, and the other, I guess, but it's like, does it, if we think, well, some people are better or worse people, do you think that the ability to know what the good thing, right thing to do is or the ethical thing to do is and successfully do it, does that depend on how good of a person you are? So Aristotle, in a certain way, I think, and the Confucians, their thought is you have to be a pretty good person or like a really good person to know what the ethical thing to do is and to pull it off, not just... You know, you can't just, it's like, we just like, are like, okay, your kid graduated from college and they've like launched and they're not a sociopath and they're like, you know, playing nicely with others and you like them and they're a friendly person. There are lots of those people that may not be able to know what the ethical thing to do is and do it. Um, I think on these kind of other, these are these kind of like Confucian and, and Greek models, whereas someone like Khan thinks, it's much like whatever you're really obligated to do morally, you're, you can figure that out if you're just, you know, a well-developed, mature human. Um, mm. And so that's the thing is that this kind of thing of whether they're, and so Kant will say, oh yeah, he does think there are these virtues that make people, you know, even better or not, but you don't need the virtues to be able to get a grip on what you need to do to be a morally good person. Mm. So it's this kind of question about access to, what's morally good to do and then the ability to do it. That's it sort of depends on whether you're a good person or not in these one view and not the other. And in those views, um, like Greek and Confucian kind of views, um, ancient Greek and Confucian views, mm -hmm. the thought is still that 
most people have the capacity to be able to know what is the ethical thing to do, mm-hmm. but it needs to be developed, right? Or is that well? So this is and so this is one difference you definitely see with the Greeks and the Confucians. So the Confucians, uh, at least, sort of like uh, there's a there's a debate. In, in Confucianism, and so Mencius, so sort of the analects of, of, of Confucius, if someone picked that up, it kind of reads like aphorisms or like little wise sayings, and it's really, it's not like a systematic treatise. It's just sort of like, here's stuff he said, and there's another stuff, and there's sort of themes. And so then Mencius, one way to think about him is he was the first guy to kind of develop a slightly more systematic account of, of Confucian thinking. And Mencius was very optimistic. He thought human beings are by nature good. They have what he called sprouts, uh, sort of like natural tendencies that if developed in good environmental conditions will lead them to be a good person and then they'll know the right thing to do and do it. Um, then the next sort of big Confucian thinker after that and other, Confu- other non-Confucians in the environment, they were like, that's a total pipe dream. <laughs> um, they, were more, they were more skeptical. Um, but there, but there is Mencius was very optimistic. If you look at the Greeks, uh, you know, like I was saying, like Aristotle just thinks like, you know, like basically women are out of the running, more or less. I mean, that's, I don't know if it's, that might be too, slightly too strong. Maybe not. He thinks no. there are these people who are just, you know, they can't get it. Uh, there's no way. Um, and so, you know, he thinks it's just, it might just be a matter of kind of luck. And so that's one thing people talk about is that in ancient Greece and in China, there's more of an idea that there might be a certain type of what gets called moral luck that people call character luck. So it's like, well, you might just be born uh, with, you know, we would now say the genes. And then you also, that you might have to have the right genes in order to be capable of becoming fully moral and being someone who really has the moral virtues and can act on them well. Yeah. Um, okay. So now let's compare that though to like modern day Aristotelians, because clearly that right, is problematic. Right. Oh yeah. So like, or or even if we just set the people that he excluded off the table, which right. might be a little bit unfair of a situation, but it's not as though in the Aristotelian tradition people are born with the natural ability to tell uh, ethical behaviors apart from unethical behaviors, right? They right, still have to... Right. Yeah, no, that's right. No, so yeah, obviously nobody today is like running around saying Aristotle was right and women don't have reason. Yeah, so that's totally... Uh, <laughs> there's this much more open-minded, you know, like egalitarian uh, idea. But 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 as what's retained, you're right, is um, you still need... So like one thing you might notice if you started looking like who supports character education in the schools, well, one big group of people are going to be people who are connected to Catholicism and other religious traditions that are influenced by Aristotle. And so part of the character education movement, uh, you might think of it as being inspired by this Aristotelian idea is that, you know, you can't just trust that if kids uh, learn to reason well uh, in some basic sense, uh, they're going to be able in principle just to pick out what's morally right or wrong and then do it. It's like, no, they need to be trained to have certain character traits and, you know, there's debates about how you would get someone to develop character traits uh, successfully or not. Um, but you're right. That idea is still there that modern Aristotelians tend to think that's the right way to think about morality. It's like, 
you have to kind of set your goal of training people to develop these moral capacities and then act on them. Um, now, returning back to, so like the idea of moral luck, like you're either born capable of making these distinctions or you're not, sounds right. very, very creepy and repulsive. But, right, right. <laughs> but playing devil's advocate, to be fair, I think that mm. a lot of people think that way about people with like severe, um, you know, cognitive disabilities. Oh, so, yeah, right, right. so I think that most people would question like, okay, a child who is born with severe autism, are they, are they capable of reasoning through these ethical situations or to make decisions about themselves? Well, mm -hmm. a lot of people will still say no. Um, right. Did Aristotle or others kind of buying into those positions mm -hmm. try to whittle down to like, well, here's, here's what's necessary to be in this privileged moral luck group amongst mm -hmm. men kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they, I mean, that's a great question. So they did. And I mean, one way to think about this is that one, another big contrast between if you start thinking about this framework where you're focusing on exactly the question you're asking, like what are the things you have to develop to be morally excellent um, and that some people can't and it might be a matter of luck, you get really different answers in these two traditions. So that's why I sort of think this way we're talking about it, it's useful to then compare them. So like the Greeks tended to think, or Aristotle at least thought, you have to train your emotions to be in, in some kind of synchron, synchronous uh, or like kind of like match up with your reasoning and your beliefs hmm. about what's right or wrong. So you need a sort of cognitive capacity to judge correctly. Um, so one thing you might need to do is you might be able to pick out what are the like competing reasons that make it hard to figure out or not obvious what's right or wrong in the situation. Like if there are different people's competing interests are in play. Um, so you'd have to think about like who's good is in play. Like if you're doing something and it's going to affect your, you're like, okay, should you accept this new job offer? It would require you to move away from your fiance. Well, it's going to affect you in certain ways, but also them. So you have to be able to think intelligently about what will be good or bad for those two people. And so I think that's one way to think someone like Aerosol thinks you have to be able to have a certain cognitive sophistication to be able to make judgments will it be good or bad for someone based on what you're going to do. So if I ask, you know, a five-year-old, what do you think is going to happen if dad uh, moves away for a year? They'll just like start crying or something, right? right. Uh, they're going to be like, it's bad, 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 right? They can't, and you're like, well, what will, will it be good or bad for your dad? It's like, they can't comprehend that concept and think about it. So that's one way to get into this idea. You need a certain cognitive sophistication to think about what's good or bad for people. Um, then you need to think about who deserves certain goods or who, who, who what would be a, well, you know, we might think it was kind of a fair distribution or a just distribution. So there are these complicated judgments you should be able to make. Um, and then on top of that, the Greeks think to be a morally good person, you have to have emotions that align with those. So an example would be, you might judge, you might think about it and be like, you know, your fiance is going to move away for a year and it's, it bums you out. And it's going to be hard for you, but you think overall that's the best thing for both of you. It's the best decision for him. And so after you made that decision um, and he's, you know, moved away, uh, you know, if you're talking to him on the phone 
so I shouldn't give you the example. Maybe I'm the person. So, but like this person moves away, and then if you like start kind of like passive aggressively giving them crap on the phone for being away, I think that's a kind of modern example of your your emotions aren't in line with what like, you think. It's good that they're there. So why are you like getting angry they're there and then kind of giving them a hard time? It's like your emotions are suggesting it's bad that they're there, basically. Mm. Um, and so that's one way to think about like the Greek model of virtue is you you can make all these complicated judgments about you know what the right thing to do is, and you can grasp these considerations and weigh them up, figure out what the right thing to do is, and then your emotions track that. Um, and you know, similarly, like, not only do you know it's wrong to uh, discriminate against people because of their skin color, uh, if you see someone discriminating against someone because of their skin color, you're disposed to notice it and get kind of pissed off. So it's like you kind of judge stuff and then your emotions um, respond in sort of in lockstep. So that's the, that's this Greek guy. And so if you think about that, yeah, many of us don't have that kind of, we're not like super developed. Like I guarantee you if my wife like went away for a year and I thought it was the best thing, I probably would be maybe passive aggressive. And angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's this, you could see they had this very, um, I think, you know, kind of, it is, it's sort of an admirable ideal. And they thought, uh, Certainly for our politicians, we want to have people like that. So like, you know, our politicians right now, they're like the absolute opposite of everything they would have thought we wanted. Um, but they thought we have to make people who make good decisions with the right emotions. And they thought, you know, same thing to be, you know, a good uh, person in many roles in society. Uh, and they thought your own life will be better if and you're a better person if you have that kind of structure. Yeah. Um, so that's the Greek thing. Um, yeah. What about like agency? How do these traditions compare on mm. the issue of agency and the and right. role in ethics? Right. And I mean, also, I think it's relevant to kind of this most recent part of the conversation. Like, it seems that agency might be something that's relevant to whether or not a person is capable of making ethical decisions or ethical development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, one thing, one way, I guess, to start off is, like, again, it's sort of, like, a caricature that you would be good to start with, I think, would be in ancient China and ancient Greece, they just don't, nobody's talking about free will. I mean, maybe they don't have the concept of free will. Uh, they just don't really, and there's a lot of debate about this, but scholars writing about those both traditions, they, they went so far at certain points for people to say, they didn't even have the idea of intentional action or hmm. something really extreme. And then that's, that's basically been, you know, I think debunked. Yeah. Uh, there were these really strong claims about that and about Greek views, or at least the, at least in the Homeric poems and stuff. And so people push back like Bernie Williams is a philosopher push back against that. And same thing in the East people push back against uh, this guy Finnegan. But, basically, you know, the truth in this is like, if you study these views, I mean, one thing, they certainly don't talk about something like what we might now think about as us having free will in a strong sense. Um, yeah. And then they also, you know, tended to think when they think about responsibility, which is always connected to our idea of agency, um, they had, they seem to have a kind of different way of thinking about 
responsibility where um, you could be responsible for things when you couldn't have done otherwise or, you know, that's a complicated notion. But like something like it wasn't under your control. That's what, you know, like right now, if you were like, um, if your friend gets really angry and yells at you or something and you're and afterwards like, I'm so sorry. And you'd be like, well, look, I'm glad you apologized. But it's not like you didn't do it on purpose. Like you're kind of out of control or, you know, like we have some notion of like when you're exercising your agency, you're more responsible for it and it was under your control. And I think that kind of idea, it's at least not prominent uh, in these other traditions. And so some people have talked about mo the, a modern conception of the will and free will and modern responsibility being something that arises, um, you know, maybe something like in the way the idea of modern morality arises, and there might be a connection between those that, that we talked about earlier. So um, not a scholar, super, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but that's my take on sort of like a good caricature anyway. Um, so they'll talk about, blaming people and people feeling ashamed about stuff. Uh, so they will talk about responsibility, but it's, it's not tied to what was under your control in that same way. So I don't know if that's what you were asking about. But. Yeah. And to clarify, they, what is, who is they in that circumstance you're talking about, like Eastern traditions? Yeah, the Eastern and the Greeks, right. So both kind of ancient okay. traditions, um, they tend to list in that direction, um, you know, as the Eastern tradition, Chinese traditions develop, they, there's more of an emphasis on, you know, something like uh, self-governance and self-determination, and you get something closer to agency. Um, That's fascinating. Least, yeah. Very cool. Okay, so um, we're actually a little bit over time, but oh, I, I want to ask, no, no, don't apologize. It's, I'm yeah. the, <laughs> it's my fault. Um, so... I want to ask also, like, what your hopes are for taking comparative ethics and mm. applying it either in the real world or even just mm. for future research directions. Mm -hmm. What do you hope happens with these comparative frameworks? Yeah, I mean, my, I guess this is just my uh, current thinking of where I'm going to go, but I mean, my thought is that... Um, there are just general way, like, so one thing that's going on in a lot of at least philosophy, you also see to some extent in psychology, is that if you're looking for a character-focused uh, way of thinking about morality and ethics, um, and, you, and you're thinking about character development, for example, and you're thinking about virtues, uh, in philosophy and in some of the psychology, people just look to Aristotle or... St. Thomas, they look to that part of the Western tradition. And my thought is that if you look to the Eastern traditions like Confucianism and Buddhism, um, they have a lot, they have basically all the things that people like about these Western traditions, but then they, they have fewer of the bad things that are bad about, like we're saying, like Aristotle cutting out the women and other things. Uh, I think there are fewer bad things about these traditions. And I think the Eastern traditions have have kind of promising aspects that you mm -hmm. don't see. So my thought is if you're, if you're looking for a way to develop kind of uh, kind of broadly virtue ethical approach to thinking about ethics and ethical development, um, I think some of these Eastern traditions, they have just resources for to kind of, you know, for today that you don't get in the West. And so like we talked about, you can't just, you know, 
pretend you're going to just adopt them. But I guess my thought is, you know, we could think about how to develop ethics today and implement ethics and try to make people more ethical today in our society. Hmm. There are real resources over there that you don't find uh, in the West. So that's my, my hope is that um, this kind of cross-cultural philosophy will get kind of more mainstream and normalized to the point where it'll just inspire move, new ideas in Western philosophy and maybe Western psychology. Um, kind of the way, you know, mindfulness, like it's sort of become <clears throat> independent of the original stuff, but it's, but it's become its own thing. It's right. got integrated with CBT and it's, you know, kids are doing it when they get stressed out on college campuses. And it's like, I think there's more stuff from the ethical views that might be able to be uh, brought over and then to some extent separated, you know, so that, that's, that's my hope for where things would go. Yeah. That kind of, um, before we started the recording, you had mentioned that it seems like there's a little bit of a whole connecting studies in psychology about well-being and some ethics and morality. It sounds mm -hmm. like that's also, you know, like in a sense what mindfulness is doing. Yeah, no, and I think that's, it's interesting. I'll be interested to see in psychology, the people who do mindfulness, you know, there are these other more morally, ethically loaded uh, practices in, say, Buddhism. And so it'd be kind of interesting, what, to what extent can those get integrated into something like cognitive behavioral therapy? Because yeah. those are mostly focused, you know, like, oh, kind of like getting you to feel better and eliminate your pathologies. It's sort of about personal well-being. So, mm -hmm. but then... Well, why couldn't we also uh, think of it as, you know, a toolkit for people to, who want to be better people in an ethical sense? Um, that would be really interesting. I think, you know, that could lead to political debates and stuff, but, it, but it's an interesting uh, kind of idea. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brad. I um, am excited to have been here with you today and to hear about these different traditions. I learned a lot and I'm grateful. Oh, well, thank you. No, it's been a lot of fun. I think it's an awesome podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.